Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Build Business Acumen podcast, where we deliver practical knowledge and powerful guidance. Here is your futuristic host, Nathaniel Schooler. Well, Eric, it's really great that you managed to make the time to join me. And I am very interested in learning a bit about product marketing, because I know that's your specialty. And obviously mm-hmm. writing as well, because I know you've been doing a lot of writing over the years. So to anyone that doesn't know, this is Eric Moyler. I'm probably pronouncing that the English way, but <laughs> there we go. But you, you, you work that's over fine. You work over at Sage, right? And you, you, you're uh, head right. of marketing for, for some piece of tech that I know nothing about at all. So I'll, I'll kind of let you, let you carry on, really, and just uh, explain a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. First off, thanks for having me here, Nat. Happy to join you and have a conversation about this. Yeah, so I've been with Sage for just over two years, and I'm responsible for a specific product line. So it's called Sage 200 Cloud. It's a product that's sold in 15-plus you know, countries around the world. Uh, the way the product marketing is set up at Sage is that there actually are in global leaders for all the different product lines. So you actually, it's almost like having a CEO overlooking all the different facets of marketing for the individual products. Okay. So I work with product marketers in all the different regions where my product is sold. And uh-huh. really, the role of product marketing at Sage, the way I would say it's the way it's defined, is like I said, it's sort of the CEO of the different facets of the marketing. So you're looking at everything from the different campaigns that we're developing at a global level and how those can be used at the, the regional level, the pricing, um, monitoring the performance of the product, how it's selling now, uh, how we expect thing, this, you know, sales to pick up over the next 12 to 24 months, and also even looking further into the future in terms of what is it from a market requirements perspective, is it, what is it that the, the market needs going to the future? Is it the same product? Is it something different? You know, where do we need to go from a strategy perspective? So. Wow. It's, uh, it's actually quite an exciting role. It's, there's so many different things that you get involved with. It can also be tiring because you're thinking, oh man, there's so many different balls in the air and so many different things to keep track of. But really, that's, that is a challenge, but it's also the exciting facet of the role as well. Right, right. So you, how many languages are you sort of responsible for there, Eric? Is, is it a lot of different ones or is it just English or, or what? So the product is localized into a number of different markets. And again, for people that don't have a lot of experience with software localization, localization refers to both the languages that the product is translated into, as well as whatever the local requirements are. So that, I just wanted to highlight that also for people listening, that oh, really? it's not just the language, it's both what might be unique. So for example, when you think about compliance requirements, different governmental uh, requirements, uh, that would vary by country. And obviously, that's an element of localization that some countries need this, other countries may, need not, may not need that as well. So right. yeah, there are quite a few markets that we have to consider when we're localizing the product. Right, right. So, so you would say that it's, it's completely customer-led, like it's customer-driven completely. Like the, you must be collecting feedback from people, you must be talking with, with government organizations, plus the country managers, because you've got teams in each one of those countries to manage the marketing for that product, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, there, as you highlighted, there are many different stakeholders. I mean, as you said, everything from the customers in those markets to the governmental organizations you work with. But even when you sell your product through a channel. What you were saying about the different stakeholders involved, I mean, it's quite a, it's quite a complicated job you've got there, Eric. <laughs> it certainly is, yeah. Well, I mean, as, you've, as you point, pointed out, Nat, um, there are many different stakeholders that we need to work with to understand exactly what the requirements in the marketplace are. So as you said, there are customers, the different governmental organizations. And if you look at what's happening in the UK, for example, with Brexit, we're working very closely with different people within HMRC to understand what the implications will be for businesses. But these are things that affect businesses in the UK, but obviously in other markets as well. 
Um, the other thing to highlight too is we have an extensive partner network. So we sell a lot of our products indirectly through a, a partner channel, and they're also critical stakeholders in terms of um, future requirements, what they see as challenges, you know, what what they'd like to see from us in the future, other products they might want to see us introduce. So there's a lot of different things to take into consideration. Yeah, yeah, it's very it's it's very complicated. I mean, in terms of in, so so. If you were to start with a new product, let's just imagine you've got a new product that you're launching, mm-hmm. yeah? Um, you, would, you would start by working out exactly, you know, the, the, the brand wording around that product. So you would, you would work out, you know, what it does, first of all, which is obviously, you know, really important. But then you would work out why it's different and or better than anything else out there what gives it authority and credibility, which is that it is part of Sage and Sage already has that credibility mm-hmm. and authority and trust factor, right? Mm-hmm. And then you, would, then you would take all those words and then you would, you would put them into some sort of imagery. Is that, is that fair to say? Well, I think the way that it works at Sage is that if we were looking at moving into a new product area, I think some of the considerations are, first of all, what is the opportunity? Where is the white space in the market? what is an underserved market that we should be considering. So I think it really starts with an outside view first in terms of what, what is it that we're looking to target. Once we have a sense of where that opportunity resides, where there's customer pain, where customers are, are looking to pay to solve a problem, I think really where, where our process goes from there is, should we build something ourselves? Should we perhaps acquire something? So those are a couple of different considerations from there. Right. And there's, a lot, there's certainly a lot that goes into the research um, part of it is, is working with third-party groups um, to get some, some data in terms of what is the market opportunity. We might actually do some primary research of our own to get input from customers you know, regarding the sort of solution they'd be looking for. Uh, we've talked to our partners. we talked to existing customers. There's a lot of different stakeholders. But again, that's really an outside-in perspective. We'd start with the outside. And then from there, then we'd, as you, you touched on as well, we'd also look at once we decided on an approach to, uh, to market, we would talk about those things such as um, what would the, the key differentiators be? What would the customer value proposition be? That sort of thing. So yeah, you've certainly touched on some of the key things that we would do if moving into a new product area. Right, right. And then, and then with, with product marketing, you, you, you basically have to, you're still trying to communicate a message to all of the stakeholders, right? And the yep. stakeholders include the end user, mm-hmm. yeah, but they also include the reseller channel Absolutely. and they include the other people who work, who you work with. So it includes, you know, internal communications as well. Mm-hmm. But also each one of those countries, like you say, has, has different features that you, in essence, are led by the customer to create. And then you need to communicate with all of the, reg- the regulatory organizations as well, right? Absolutely. Yeah, you've, you've touched on a really important facet of this role in product marketing is that you know, selling is such an important part of what we do. And you've just, you know, you've touched on some really important things there. Part of it is doing the internal selling. Um, I've definitely worked in companies in the past where We've developed a product, but we haven't done the internal selling to get the sales team, for example, sold as to why this is a great opportunity, why customers will love it, why it'll be something that's easy for them to sell. So yeah, as you said, the internal selling is critical. In our case, where we sell a lot of our our products through resellers, you also pointed that out, is that we need to successfully get them excited about it because yeah, salespeople will go where there's the, and this isn't, this is not a criticism, but they will go where there's the path of least resistance. They're not looking yeah. for the most difficult thing to sell. They want to sell what's going to be easy to sell. And I think that's, that sometimes gives you feedback in terms of whether you've taken a product to market in the correct way. If it sells quickly and easily, then clearly you've got things right. If you're facing resistance and challenges, then perhaps there's something not quite right. The question then becomes, well, what exactly is it? Is it the pricing? Have we not done enough to enable the sales team and the partner channel? You know, what is it exactly? Is there something perhaps missing from the product offering the customers are looking for? So there's a lot of, yeah, I think you can get a lot of feedback and you have to be constantly watching and listening to what, what you're hearing from your own salespeople, the partners, and ultimately from the market as well. Right. 
Right. So is it fair to say that you go back to the old school of the four P's of, you know, product, price, place and promotion? I yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was in business school, there were only those four P's. I think they've expanded it to eight P's yeah. now. But um, I think, yeah, I mean, who knows what the, it, it, maybe in 10 more years, there'll be 16 P's. It's hard to know <laughs> what that's going to go up to. But I, I think the thing is, you know, the, the, the four P's or whatever number of P's people like to draw upon. I think they're really just a reminder of the types of questions that you need to be asking yourself. Um, and I think this is critical in any facet of business, but certainly in marketing, you need to be constantly questioning things. Why, why, you know, maybe we've done it this way. What if we tried it that way? What might we expect? You know, what's our hypothesis? And then actually tracking the results and seeing what's working and what isn't. But yeah, I think questioning and observing those are really important skills, certainly as a product marketer. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's funny how they just add on these these ridiculous sort of terms like this hyperbole we're sort of lost in, aren't we? Really? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So 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 okay. So we've kind of we've kind of touched on all the areas that you're that you're sort of involved with. So what does a typical day, all right, a typical week look like for you, Eric? Yeah, I'm glad that you switched it from day to week because I think no one day is, is alike in this role. But I think, right. you know, at, from a week to week, month to month, quarter to quarter basis, the types of things that you're looking at, I mean, it's everything from looking at, at the, the measurements, the how, how successful are we? So looking at your results, looking at what's forecasted, those things are really important because it's really, you know, having your finger on the pulse of the business, what's working and what isn't. So, um, Numbers are a critical part of our role looking at that. And it's looking at the numbers from many different perspectives, you know, everything from the annual recurring revenue to the price points and which additions of the product are selling better than others, um, which vertical markets are we having the most success in and how does that align to the campaign activity. So I think measurement is a critical part of our role. And truthfully, that, that is a factor on a day-to-day -day basis. So a day doesn't go by that you're not either being asked those questions or investigating something and trying to understand something about the business more. So yeah, so numbers is a critical part of it. I think another part of it is also problem solving. There are problems in, the, in any business and you're trying to figure out, well, what, what is the problem? Let's first understand the scope of the problem and then try to look at what specifically is causing the problem. So I think that's another, both another critical skill, but also an activity that we're involved with in a day-to-day, -day, week week-to-week, month-to-month basis. Um, mm -hmm. planning is another part of it. You can't just live in the moment <laughs> because, uh, you know, you really have to be looking. It is, that's one of the complexities of the rules I think is you have to balance out how much time you're looking at the present moment and what's happening in the business as well as where it's going. So I think that's another part of it, is planning it. Um, other parts of the day-to-day -day activity are selling the vision. Um, and that, that came up earlier in this conversation when you're talking about a go-to-market but I think the thing is when strategically the business is trying to move in a new direction, um, you might get a directive from the executives in the business saying, hey, we want to move in this area, whatever it may be. And then your job as one of the, the directors in product mar marketing is to actually look at what are we doing on the ground level in each market to support that higher level objective. So part of it is really helping to sell the vision that's come from the top as well as to watch what's happening and to help drive that change. Because if people aren't bought in, they're really going to do whatever it is that they want to do. And I think in a large global organization, that's one of the big challenges is that not everything's controlled from the top. You have direction that comes down from the top, but a lot of decisions are actually derived in the individual markets. And I think what we try to do is we try to connect the overall strategy at the top from a global perspective, what's happening in the regions and, and really how do those connect and align. So um, alignment in a large organization is one of the biggest challenges. So you have to figure out who the stakeholders you need to consult, who do you need to communicate with, you know, where are the challenges in the business that you need to overcome. Uh, so yeah, there's selling, I guess, is another part of the, um, of the role as well. So those are some of the, the big ones I'd, I'd highlight. Yeah. Well, staying super organized must just be like fundamental to this because it's so complicated, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think your own personal systems evolve over time. Uh, within Sage, we use Microsoft Office, so everything is, if you've used the more recent versions of, of Office 365, um, everything's cloud-based. So, you know, how do you yeah. actually collaborate 
with, on documents and how do you share those broadly and how do you organize what you're working on. Um, we use Microsoft Teams. I don't know if you've ever used that in the past. It's, it's similar no. to Slack. So we right. use Microsoft Teams for chat and collaboration that now actually also has video and audio capabilities. Um, so it's actually, it's really cool. It's similar to, to Zoom and other tools you might have used where you can record, share those yeah. with colleagues that can't, uh, can't make meetings. But yeah, organization is critical. And I think you can never be complacent and say, yeah, I'm sufficiently organized. I think it's like any skill. You want to just keep improving upon it, taking advantage of new tools. Um, just so you can optimize your, your organization skills and how you collaborate with colleagues across different geographies and time zones. Definitely a real challenge. Yeah, yeah. So how many, how many people do you actually communicate with? That is a very good question. I, I don't have a number at, the, at my fingertips, but basically the role that I have used to manage teams directly whereas now it's actually an individual contributor role. So, um, so that has changed in the time that I've been with Sage where I've been managing a team and then going back to managing the business. I would say there's kind of a, an inner group of, of stakeholders and colleagues. You know, on, yeah, I guess you kind of have that inner core where maybe it's 30 plus people that sort of your inner core. And then when you think about the broader markets, sorry, the broader um, stakeholder groups that one might work with, it could easily be in the hundreds of people so right. yeah, there's, uh, there's so many touch points and it's funny, actually tools like LinkedIn, even though it's an external tool, those things can also be very effective for, for managing your, your network within a company as well, in terms of who are those contacts within a given market. If you say, if there's a, a colleague that you don't work with that often, or you're trying to figure out who might that person be, you might just look up on LinkedIn, your company name for the geography and the role title and suddenly see other people that you might want to connect with. So yeah, it's definitely uh, a lot of complexity in terms of the numbers of people you interact with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're doing, if you're doing third party uh, channel reseller channel kind of sales, like that's, that's like, you know, a job in itself. <laughs> I mean, reseller marketing and, and stuff. So do, do you sort of do like joint marketing programs with, with people if they want to help, to sell your product and and it's one of their solutions that they're selling, a bit like IBM. Yeah, so I'm not directly involved with that side of the business, but to your point, there are there are different types of partners we have. There are strategic partners, um, like you mentioned, large organizations. Microsoft would be an example of one of those for for Sage, where we co-market uh, solutions in the in in the marketplace. So that would be an example where we might do that sort of thing. Um, with our own resellers, so smaller resellers, you know, smaller than Microsoft, um, we would actually have co-marketing with them as well. We actually develop campaigns where they can leverage those and use those right. to, uh, to generate new opportunities. So there's a, there's a bunch of different things we do on that front. Um, one other thing that you mentioned a moment ago when you're just talking about managing the relationships with those partners, something that we do which uh, I'm sure a lot of other companies do as well, is that we have actually have partner advisory um, councils and committees. And these are opportunities to bring some of your larger partners together and your more engaged partners together to actually share information with them and to get feedback. So you might talk to them about things that you're either considering on a product roadmap or perhaps um, announce things that are, that are actually coming in the roadmap. Um, so you can talk about how easy it is to do business with, uh, with your organization. So um, it's really great. It's like having a small focus group where you can actually, you know, trusted advisors, people who will not pull their punches, who will tell you exactly like it is and give you a sense of what's working well and what some areas for improvement are. You know, and really we need that sort of feedback in all different facets of our lives. But, but clearly when you're working with partners, you need to have that feedback loop in terms of how can we keep improving what we're doing to better serve that organization. Yeah, hundred percent. So, so really, I mean, product marketing is, is whilst it's very complex and it has a lot of people who are involved with it, it's, it's, it's marketing, right? It's not, it's not sort of a kind of dark art, is it? It's uh, it is just marketing. That's all. I mean, really, yeah, product marketing is marketing, but it touches on all the different facets of marketing. So for example, say if there's a branding change, um, our group would be consulted for that sort of a change. Um, if campaign, there are campaigns teams 
the develop campaigns, they need input from the product marketing organization in terms of, you know, who are the right segments to be targeting this campaign at, which vertical markets would we want to target? What are the key messages that we need to focus on? Um, those are some of the different facets. We have uh, a market intelligence and competitive intelligence team. And while they're broadly looking at the marketplace and the competitive landscape as well, they will come to the product marketing organization for specific deep dives into what's happening with competitors as well. So yeah, we, I mean, we really do touch every facet of marketing. There isn't an area of marketing that we don't get involved with. So it's, I mean, I would say every marketer would be strengthened for having spent time working in product marketing, whether they want to do that in the long run or if they'd rather specialize in something. But I think it's definitely a great way to have a broad set of marketing skills and if you like variety in your role, it's certainly a great way to get a variety and, uh, and to see different part, parts of the business. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really interesting role, certainly. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun, actually. It, it really does. Is, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I had no idea it was so complex, actually, Eric. I knew you did some amazing things over there. <laughs> well, but, thank you. <laughs> but, but, but it's like, but it's like you, you're dealing with 15 different markets, right? And multiple, multiple languages multiple different um you know uh, governmental regulations it's a really complicated role like i don't know how you make time for anything else in your life to be honest it's um you must be getting pretty good at uh, managing your time i imagine after all this alt mb mba stuff you've been doing yeah definitely one other quick thing i was just going to mention on on all that complexity i mean i think the thing is you definitely have to rely upon having a strong team so all that complexity um, it's definitely made easier by having a really good team that you can trust and rely upon. So that would be one thing. But the other thing too, if you're familiar with you know, the 80-20 principle or the you know, Pareto principle, mm-hmm. I think that's a critical part of this as well, is that you can't do everything well. You have to really figure out what are the most important things that I need to do really well and where can I, excuse me, where can I have maybe not as high expectations in, in other areas as well. So for, in, in my case, I know that there are five markets that drive, you know, three quarters of the revenue that uh, that I deliver. So it's really that gives me a very strong cue in terms of where do I need to, if I need to succeed, how do I really make sure I'm covering these markets as effectively as possible? So I think that's again knowing your numbers is a really critical part of it as well. So you get a sense of where do you put your attention. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Keeping keeping really focused on the eighty percent of results from 20% of your efforts is just like, no, it's, it's like a no brainer, isn't it really? But yeah, definitely. But it's so easy though, to get distracted in today's, you know, technology world and just, you know, enjoy sort of doing things, but actually not being productive. And I think that's, that's a big, a big thing that, you know, marketers especially struggle with. Absolutely. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think we should move on to to the next topic and sure. talk about writing skills, if you like, because you've you've given an amazing overview of of, of um, product marketing. I mean, do you think we've sort of do you think you know we've sort of missed anything? Are there any sort of other tips you might want to give people who are going into product marketing? Uh, well, I mean, I think I've covered the re- the big things. That I um, yeah, I mean, tips. I think things like you know, be proactive. I mean, I think these are really critical parts. Know, be clear on what the goal is and how you're progressing towards the goal. I think those are probably the key takeaways I would, uh, I would highlight. But yeah, happy to, to talk about writing if that's the next thing you wanted to, to cover. Yeah, yeah, that would be fantastic. I mean, I think, you know, we, we could talk a little bit more if you like about product marketing. I mean, it, it's, it's a big subject, isn't it? It's, it's a, I mean, I think writing is also a big subject though, really, yeah. Eric, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's certain they're both very big subjects, but what, you know, to tie the two together, I actually think writing skills are a critical component of, uh, you know, for a product marketer or any marketer for that matter. It may yeah. seem like an obvious thing to say, but um, maybe if I just tell you a little bit about the background of all this, um, going back probably about five or six years, I was listening to a lot of podcasts and I remember hearing different entrepreneurs being interviewed and then talking a lot about the importance of learning the craft of sales copywriting. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, I've worked in marketing my entire career. I hear people talking about sales copywriting, but I'm not even sure if I'm completely clear on what they're talking about. I mean, 
Are they just, what exactly is it they're talking about? And many of them referenced these different books that were great books to read to learn about sales copywriting. And really, if you distill it down, when you think about copywriting, it's, it's writing words. But if you think about sales copywriting, it's how to use words to sell as effectively as possible. So even, like I said, even though I had been working in my career, it's not something that I had um, developed in, developed my skills in further. So I used the sort of journey where I, I bought a couple of books on sales copywriting, the ones that people had recommended. And I started to dig into it. And it was almost like this onion, you know, you start peeling it back layer by layer. And for the better part of a couple of years, I completely geeked out on sales copywriting. And I, I'm trying to remember how many books on sales copywriting I have now. I, I might have upwards of 20 to 25 books wow. on sales copywriting. So wow. it really was something that I completely nerded out on and, and loved. And it's definitely something that I would recommend other people, even if you're not interested in and you know, going quite to that length of, of reading, you know, 20 plus books on sales copywriting, at the very least, I would say get your hands on one book of, of sales copywriting and dig into that. And really what it's going to look at is how do you plan how you write in terms of what is it that your audience cares about? How do you connect whatever it is that they need, want, or desire with what you're offering? And how do you present things in a more compelling way? And it's, it really could be a game changer for anybody um, who decides, yeah, I'm going to actually spend some time learning as much about this as possible. And like I said, in these podcasts where I, the ideas just put into my mind, these were entrepreneurs that were saying, how do I leverage sales copywriting as a way to get my business off the ground? So that's really the perspective that they were taking. Um, so yeah, okay. I'm happy to dig into any area from there. But, but overall, I'd say that's really, that was the, the turning point for me, getting turned on to sales copywriting and then and really spending a couple of years investing in that skill set. Wow. Wow. That sounds amazing. So what's the actual, uh, what's the best book that you would recommend people buy? Like if you, if you only could have one book, what book would you buy? Sure. I'll, I'll answer that question, but then I'll also throw in a few others and I'll, I'll explain in a moment. So <laughs> the book that for me is the best book on sales copywriting that I've ever read is called Tested Advertising Methods. And it has the most generic sounding title you could ever imagine. And again, because it's been about six years since I've read it, I've forgotten the author's name. I should have checked that before the, uh, the interview, but Tested Advertising Methods. Now, the challenge with this book is that it's actually out of print. So you can find it on Amazon, but there will all be secondhand copies. The copy that I own is secondhand. And the price, depending on how often it's referenced in people's podcasts, <laughs> it tends to go up. So wow. I would say it's 65 pounds for, oh, okay. for a second hand, for a second hand copy. I think when yeah. I bought it, it might've been 10 pounds. So yeah, it's, it's one of those things where as they get mentioned in interviews, they just spike. So right. it's, it can be difficult and also expensive to get your hands on. But if you're really committed, I would definitely recommend people pick up that book. If they're looking for other books, um, Joseph Sugarman is another, he's an American sales copywriter and I've forgotten the name of the book of his that I, again, I should have checked these titles before I came. At Don't worry. I'll just have a look. I'm just having a look. The ad week copywriting. That's, that's, book. that's exactly. That's, right. that is an excellent book. If people are looking for an overview. So that's another good one. Um, Dan Kennedy is an American sales copywriter who has a lot of great books as well. And then if people are looking at, and again, sales copywriting can be different culturally. There is certainly an American style for sales copywriting. And then obviously for people in Europe, there's more of a, you know, an English or British style of sales copywriting. So a really good sales copywriter in the UK, his name is Andy Maslin. He's got, I think about five or six different books that I've, I've read all of them and they're all excellent. Um, so any of, I think people can't go wrong. Any of those books would certainly teach them a lot about sales copywriting. Okay. That's, that's really, really helpful. I was going to say the same thing, actually, about cultural differences. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, they, they certainly exist. I mean, if you, if you send someone an email written in a Dan Kennedy style in England, they, you know, a lot of people would just be like, what is this? Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. It, it's, too, it's too in your face. I mean, I think we have a certain sort of Britishness, don't we, about us. I mean, I know you live in the UK and it's, um, it's quite funny, really. But yeah, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to brush up on my copywriting, actually, and, and read one of these books, because I think you're completely right. And, and the way that I look at it, it's not just for marketers. 
it's for anyone within a business Absolutely. because if you can communicate your message in an email to someone and actually get the real message across that you intended in the right tone mm -hmm. received in the right way right yeah. then you're going to you're going to advance your career a lot faster than you would if you sent a message that was in the mood that you perhaps in were in when you wrote it or you know and it isn't easy like i mean i've sent all sorts of emails to people and and you know sometimes they they hit the mark and people get a good feeling from them mm -hmm. other times they like don't even respond and it's it's really quite funny isn't it absolutely i mean the things when you take the time to invest in sales copywriting learning the skill and mastering it as you say you will use it everywhere everything from presentations that you give to emails that you send to prospects or to maybe even to a colleague to sell someone on an idea um, website copy uh, online advertising i mean it's it really is anywhere you would leverage words or you know again i've done sales copywriting in the past even for video scripts so even though you're hearing the information, someone has written something ahead of time to figure out how do we get this message across as effectively as possible. I think, I think there's some really critical elements in all that. You know, whether you want to call it a trick or a, a hack or a tactic, I, think, I don't think you can trick people into buying something that they don't want. I think really sales copywriting is all about understanding your customer or your prospect, depending on what the relationship is that you have with them. It really is understanding about what they care about and then figuring out how do you connect what you're offering to what they care about. And I think sometimes we fool ourselves. We say, oh yeah, no, no, this is what the, that person needs. But you have to really have empathy and understand, is this really something that they care about or do I just have something and I'm trying to figure out who to sell it to? So um, it's, yeah, it, it definitely gets you to do a lot of self-reflection to think through who, who it's for, what it's for, how you're trying to help them to be successful with that product in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. I think you, you've got to come from a, from a place of sincerity, no doubt about it, mm -hmm. because if you, if you persuade someone to buy something, generally you're going to get a refund or you're going to get someone complaining about, about something, but That's right. with, with writing skills, yeah, there are lots of different styles, right? And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be much better at grammar. And I think using a spell check is so, so important. Whilst, whilst I like to get the words right myself first, mm -hmm. I do try my best, but I still have to use a spell check. I mean, now I actually do a lot of transcriptions. So all my podcasts are transcribed into, into words. And mm -hmm get about 90% accuracy with an AI tool that I use, okay. which, which is just amazing. And yeah, I have to go in and edit them. But the thing is, is that I sort of cheat because people know it's a transcription because it's actually got, you know, it has the name. So above my name, you know, it'll say my name and then it will have a time slot and then it will have some words and then it will have your name and then a time slot. So I sort of cheat. But if I want to, I can take those time slots out and I can turn those into articles, mm -hmm. right? And it is possible you and I could sit here for an hour and a half and we could write a 15,000 word book mm -hmm. in an hour and a half, no problem, yeah? We're using transcription tools. Mm -hmm. And they are getting better, but they are still not as accurate as I would like, if I'm brutally honest. Right. So, so... I mean, I, you know, I, you're talking to someone when I was, when I was at school, I had this English teacher and he was awful to me. And he used to tell me that I'd be, well, I'm not going to say exactly what he used to say. <laughs> but he, he used to, he used to bully me a lot because his class was so boring and he wasn't really a, a very good English teacher. I wasn't very interested in what he was teaching. So I kind of, I didn't write anything vaguely legible until, let me see. It's got to be, it's got to be about seven years ago six years ago I started writing mm -hmm. and after about so I read Seth Godin's book which is the Icarus Deception oh yeah that's an excellent book yeah it's an excellent book and I read that and it's very interesting because it actually just says you know that everyone has a voice and you will find your tribe and those are the people who are going to like your content and just get out there and get started so I thought Do you know what 
okay, I'm, I'm, I'm over 30 now. I'm, I think I was 35 mm-hmm. and I'm going to get writing. I'm going to start writing. And I started writing and I started writing and it took probably two, two years, three years, maybe four. Mm-hmm. And then IBM approached me to do some writing for, for one of their uh, blogs that they were launching, like a new site. And Seth Godin was, was hired to write some of the posts at the beginning of the, the of the actual um, launch phase. So a load of us were kind of hired to write these blogs, mm-hmm. and and I actually worked alongside someone who'd been in marketing for sort of twenty plus years and was a was a barrister. And his English, you know, he was brutal with me, and and, and it really helps mm-hmm. to have someone who you can who you can write an article with, and you can send it to them, and then yeah. they they look at it, they edit it send it back like revision two yeah mm-hmm. send it back you look at it you edit it then you send it back to them and then each time that article is getting better and better That's and great. now it's a great idea right uh, yeah and 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 now you know i can write some good stuff but it is you you're not going to become an amazing writer overnight yeah it, it you know it just doesn't work like that you need to practice absolutely you know? I, yeah i think you've yeah. touched on a couple of really important parts yeah one is as you say practicing it over and over again and i think the other part that you mentioned too is being open to that feedback i think that's something that i've certainly learned over the past decade is how to be more open to feedback I think in the past, I was very close to feedback. I might ask for feedback, but once I received it, I was very defensive to it, close to it, not willing to really implement it. And through actually the Alt-MBA, which you, you touched on, but we never really got a chance to talk about, a program that is offered by Seth Godin, it is all about feedback. How do you actively solicit feedback and, and really view feedback as a gift? Someone has given you a gift, and now you have to figure out, well, what, what do I do with this? Is this feedback that I can take action on? Or is it maybe not the right sort of feedback? But I think, yeah, as you say, being open to that feedback is really critical. And even you know, having the ability to see your own work with, you know, with a new perspective as you get better at your craft and as you start to get that feedback. Because I think that's the thing. When I've looked at how my own writing has evolved over the years, you've, you start to develop the skill to see how you've written something and say, well, actually, that's not that clear. How do I make that clear? And again, you might rewrite a section you might say, these three words could actually be replaced by this one word using one word instead of three makes it more succinct. Okay, I'll make that change as well. And yeah, you really do get that skill over time. But I think part of it is, is just having the freedom to dump your ideas onto the page and then being ruthless with your own editing in terms of how you make it as clear as possible, as succinct as possible, and also as engaging to read and, and, uh, and as powerful as possible, whatever the message is. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. 100%. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's, it's lovely that you, that you summed up all of that so concisely. And is that a word? So concisely? It might be in a concise, (laughs) in a concise manner, one might say, (laughs) you know, but, but it is, it is like that. I mean, you can, you can find yourself just writing for the sake of writing. And I would much rather have read 500 words or 600 words of on point information than actually reading a thousand word blog that just goes into drivel because so many people now they just skip, they don't, they're not interested in reading an article. They just want to skip and read the bullet points. So what's your, what's your take on bullet points, Eric? Yeah. Well, I think, See, this is, it was interesting that you brought up this topic of, of length of content because I think it depends, right? <laughs> I know that's such a middle yeah, of the road yeah. answer. No, no, you, it, it does. Now, it does. Oh, again, allow me, I won't just stop the answer there. I'll actually explain what I mean. Um, I think the thing is there are times when I'll read a business book where I will invest the time to read the entire book and I'll think, wow, this could easily have been summarized in one chapter and I actually would have preferred that. So one chapter would have been preferred to 12. So there are times when I think there's a danger in people trying to expand things because they think that that's what's required. I need to justify this by having a larger length book. Uh, you know, coincidentally, if you look at, at Seth's books, not all of them, but many of them are very short. If you look at a book like The Dip, um, again, I don't remember how many pages that is, but it's a very thin book. And I think that's the thing is I personally enjoy when a book is short and it, that's all it needs to be, then that's great. There are other times, though, when you don't want something to be too short because it's something that you're actually enjoying. 
And I think when you think about sales copy and you think about sales copy you might read on the website, picture, you might picture a new product and it's a very short, again, to you, uh, word counts like what you mentioned. If there was a product that had, say, only 500 words to say, you know, what the product is, the benefit, you know, what, what the different attributes are of the product, how it would benefit me, et cetera. 500 words may not be sufficient. If, if it's something that maybe is a larger purchase, you, you know, picture a product that maybe costs yeah. 30,000 pounds, for example, 500 yeah. words may not be sufficient. You might actually want 1,500 to 3,000 words. And it's not that you'll necessarily read all those things, but you might be looking for everything from testimonials. What, what have other people said about it? What are the frequently yeah. asked questions? And, and all those, when you look at something like an FAQ section, when you're writing an FAQ section, you're really trying to think through what are all the questions someone's going to have or potentially what are the objections or concerns that they're going to have yeah. and how do you actually yeah. go through and answer those. And I think that's where long-form copy can play an effective role. If someone's trying to decide whether to buy a three-pound ebook, I mean, clearly they don't need 3,000 words to sell them on that. So I think, I think the price can be indicative of, of how long the copy should be. Uh, but yeah, so there, I don't think there's a a hard and fast rule, but I think it really is what's, what is required to get the job done and uh, what is it that, that your prospect is going to want to know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, it goes back to who the audience is, doesn't it? I mean, Absolutely. if they're a really technical person, they might want to read 10,000 words, like you don't know, but it all depends on what you're, what you're trying to write mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And I, I just think that, I just think it's so enjoyable to actually, when you, when you write something that, you nailed it. I mean, I wrote a book. Yeah, I didn't release it. I just, I just have it on my website for mm-hmm. sale. And it's called Cheers to You. And I got a, a friend of mine to write the title for me. He's a New York Times bestselling author six times. Mm. And a uh, really nice guy called Brian Eisenberg. You might know him. You've probably, you've probably seen him. But he, um, he's written, he, he wrote a book on, I think it's called Branding Like Amazon or something like that. Okay. And he's obsessed with obsessed with customer service and he's obsessed with the Amazon mentality mm-hmm. and, and his book's very, very short. Uh, the book that he gave me uh, was so short and, and actually writing a book, people who've never written a book or never written anything, they, they actually, they actually can't understand how you can do it. Like it seems like a feat beyond them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but when you do it, you realize how hard it is. It is hard. I mean, I wrote, I think I wrote how many thousand words? It was probably, it was probably 10,000 words. Mm -hmm. It's not a long, you know, it's not a long book. Right. But, but the thing is, is that I gave it to my, so I edited it to the, you know, to the nines. I mean, I I spent ages writing this book and I I sent it to my dad and he's a professor. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he's a retired professor and, um, you know, he went to MIT and stuff. So he's not, he's not stupid. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, he's read a lot of, he's read a lot of reports and a lot of people, you know, he's, he's edited a lot of stuff. So he read it and he actually didn't change anything. Hmm. Because, but what he did do is he pulled me up on the grammar that I'd been using and he said, well, actually this isn't grammatically correct. And I said, well, I know that dad, that's fine but it's my style. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what I also, from my side of things, I think, you know, I mean, I'm not a sales copywriter. Right. So, so I'm not coming from a sales copywriting background. It's not something I know much about and I'm going to learn about it after speaking with you today. I'm going to go and start studying Sounds it good. because I think it helped me a lot. But what I am saying is don't be afraid to write something in your style. You're absolutely yeah? right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because it's important. Yeah, d- yeah, I fully agree with you. I think there's um, an American entrepreneur whose name is Neville Medora, and he also talks a lot about sales copywriting. If you look at his blog, I mean, I've never met him in person, so I don't know this for a fact, but I get the sense that his blog, he writes the way he speaks. And I guess that's the thing is different audiences are going to, different styles of writing will resonate with different people. Some people, want more academic writing. Some people want something that sounds informal and casual. Some people want something that sounds, you know, maybe <laughs> for lack of a better expression, very urban. So I think you're yeah. right. You need to, you need to be authentic. You need to be true to whatever your style is. You know, don't, don't yeah. sound, 
like the way you don't actually sound in real life. So I, th I think that's a, a critical point that you highlight. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, anyone can get someone and hire them to write a book for them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it varies from what, probably 500, 500 pounds up to tens of thousands of pounds. Yeah. Yeah. I know people that, 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 that write books. There's a, there's a, there's a gentleman near you that's an absolutely lovely chap and he's, but the thing is, it all depends. Like, if you want to write a book, it's, I don't have a problem with people that write a book and get someone else to write it. But I think that it definitely needs to contain the personality of the individual. Like what you were just saying is is absolutely correct. There's no doubt about it. Oh, it's yeah. so important. Because otherwise, someone's going to talk to you and they're going to be like, well, you don't even know anything about this book. Like, it, you know, you've you've positioned yourself as an expert mm -hmm. in your space by writing a book, but actually you don't know anything about it. Yeah. It's just it's actually really quite funny when you, when you see that. And unfortunately the big corporations are rife with this. Mm -hmm. yeah? They will, they will hire ghost writers for their people. Yeah. yeah. And they will, they will write blogs and that frankly, they're half asked. Yeah. yeah. Excuse my but they're half-assed, the, the quality that they're churning out, they might start off with a nice bit of style and have a good title and mm -hmm. a good idea and a good concept that flows through all of the blogs for that person. Mm -hmm. yeah? However, it is not it's not high quality enough. And I've seen it in many, many cases with some of the biggest technology companies in the world. I agree. I mean, I, I have ghostwritten content for other people before, but... For me personally, I wouldn't want to put my name on anything other than something I'd written myself. Yeah. And I think it just comes down to your own values as a person. What is it that you value? Yeah, again, I wouldn't want to tell people that I won an award if I actually didn't, if I didn't yeah. win it or didn't feel like I had deserved it. And I think that it's the same thing with writing is that there, it's, um, there is a lot of work, as you said, that goes into writing a book or some longer piece of content. And I, I would only want to put my name to something that I'd actually written myself. Yeah. yeah. Again, not to judge well, others, but that just, again, it depends what a person's values are. But yeah, for me, that's the only way I would do it. Oh, a hundred percent. Me too. But what I do like is if you actually don't write the book yourself or the content yourself, at least, at least say you didn't write it. Because if you've, you know, if you're, if you, if you're like, well, listening to this and you're thinking, well, I've got something really, really important that I want to write about, but I don't have the skills to write. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm, and I'm actually not going to put the time and effort to write anything. Yeah. Because it is very time consuming learning how to write. It really is. If you, if you're not, if you, if you didn't have a GCSE in English, you know, and you didn't do well at school and you're not a very good writer, naturally, it is difficult to write. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. But you know, there's this book here by, by, I read one probably before Christmas. Yeah. Purchased it on the 11th of December and I, I couldn't put it down. I'm just looking on Amazon now and it's, it's called can't hurt me. And you've probably heard about it. I've heard imagine. of it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's by a, a, a chap called David Goggins. Okay. Yeah. And he, he actually, so, so the subtitle is master your mind and defy the odds. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and he and he actually says that he didn't write the book himself. Okay. If you look into it, yeah, um, he actually says he didn't he didn't write it. And he said and he actually says who wrote the book. I think you'll find. I'm just having a look here. It doesn't actually say when you buy it on Amazon. It looks like he's the author, but when you actually read the book, it it I believe. On the uh, where is it? I'm just going to have a quick look before we scoot off because I know you've probably got to run off. But on on in the book, it's somewhere it says that it's written by someone else. So don't be afraid to get someone else to write it for you. But for God's sake, put your you know put some words into the guy's hands. Yep. You can't. You've got to tell the guy's story Absolutely. or the lady's story. I mean, it, transcription tools are amazing. You mm -hmm. can you. Can, you can record an audio for the person and send them an hour's audio. And then you could even create a book in one hour. Right? Oh yeah. And certainly the role of either an editor or a ghostwriter would be, they would take all that raw content and maybe they would re you know, reorder things or cluster things together. So I think you bring up a good point. That's sort of the best of both worlds that if you don't feel strong as a writer, you can certainly create the raw content 
and then have either a ghostwriter or an editor organize your thoughts for you. But yeah, it sounds, sounds like a reasonable approach. Yeah. So to sum up writing skills, right? Mm -hmm. It all starts with get it out of your head onto your computer, or even if you want to write, I mean, some people write it on paper and then they put it into Word and then they edit it, but just get it all out there mm -hmm. and then condense it down, right? But would you start with some topics that you want to cover, like five or 10 topics that you want to cover if you were writing something? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that's, that's probably the starting point is um, if you know the author, James Altucher, he talks about this idea of having lists that he creates every day. So it's, he has this exercise of coming up with lists. So he, one day he might come up and say, how, can I come up with, or I should say rather than lists, ideas, come up with 10 ideas for new businesses. And then another day might say, what are 10 blog ideas that I could come up with? Another day it might be, um, you know, what are 10 solutions to problem X, whatever the case may be. But in his case, he talks about developing this creativity muscle I think to your point, if someone wants to practice the writing skill, I think they need to be constantly thinking about what are interesting things that I could write about. And I think rather than being too self-critical, you know, whether something is a good idea or a bad idea, just get all the ideas down, have a, a list. And then as you start to write those ideas down, you might riff on your own ideas and say, well, actually, instead of this, what if I took a slightly different angle and I did that instead? And I think sometimes people... They, they lose touch with their creativity. I think it's important to stay connected to that creativity. It's, you know, it's a muscle that can atrophy if you don't use it. But to your point, okay. if you just keep thinking about all the different things you could write and keep a list, you may not, the idea may not be ready now, but by putting it down in six months, you might actually come back to that topic with a fresh perspective and say, actually, I've got a new idea as to how I might take this idea and share it with others in my writing. So yeah, it's, that's definitely a critical part of it. Yeah. 100%. This it's so exciting. Writing is so much fun when you really get into it. Yeah. I love writing. I'm just about to do some writing in the next few days because I'm working, working with a, with a, with a tech company at the moment to write, write some content. So I'm, I'm basically helping some influencers to create some content really quickly mm -hmm. because some, some blogs need to be written that educate the market and then they give away a free trial. So, so, so basically one of the influencers who's hugely influential, she actually can't, uh, can't do the content as quickly as the company wants it. So, so I said, well, I'll tell you what, why don't you, I mean, literally I had a half hour call with her earlier. I said, why don't you just record some of the information that you want me to put in this article and then I'll send it back to you. You can add your style, which is developer kind of style speak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you send it back to me, I'll modify it, send it back to you. And then we'll have a piece of content really quickly Absolutely. because otherwise there could be an agency involved, which could actually lengthen the process of the creation of the content. And if, if, a, if a company wants a content fast, you have to create it. You need to create it quick using transcription is like, Hey, I, before transcription, like it was so hard. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Eric, you've been really generous with your time. Thank you so much. And so if people want to find you, they can, they can reach out to you on LinkedIn. Is that, is that the best place? Yeah, that would be great. Absolutely. Ned, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Hope to do it again sometime. And yeah, thanks for, for reaching out. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe and wherever you prefer, share with your friends. And if you enjoyed the show, Drop us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.